Professor Warner and Professor Ballister begin their conversation with Antoine Galland's translation into French from Arabic of the Alf Leila Wal Leila as Les Mille Nuits in the first two decades of the 18th century. The text that became known in the English-speaking world as the Arabian Nights Entertainments was woven together from manuscript and verbal sources, as well as added to with apparently invented tales by Antoine Galland himself. We begin by considering whether they can be properly described as Arabian Nights, and whether they provide a better window on the French salon culture of the early 18th century than Islamic Empire, medieval or modern. I think the Oriental Tale is that melding of the French and whatever style Galland seems to have picked up from his translation from the text or from his conversations, which is so interesting because it produces a kind of Oriental style of storytelling or, or talking that you then encounter through the 18th century, whether it's mocking, the mockery sort of sends it up, mm. but it also becomes a, a very familiar expectation so when you encounter an oriental tale you expect a certain kind of tone of voice which is a little which is extravagant which is full of hyperbole which in in inclines to constantly use metaphor and simile and won't ever describe anything directly no except um, by adding an efflorescence yes, of, of metaphor yes. and often conventional metaphor around it so that, yes. but um i think that there's a difference i mean when voltaire adopts the Oriental to make his court philosophique. Mm. He actually doesn't, he, he pairs it down. Mm. After all, they're very succinct. I mean, the, these are short tales mm. and they're pithy and famously ironical um, and sort of cutting. And, mm. and, but there, it's exactly the point you were making. Here, the Orient is standing in for France or standing mm. in for the, you know, the tyrannies of the Ancien Régime. Yeah. Um, or, and and the church, and so forth. So the, it's just a screen. We're getting the superstitions of Islam are really the superstitions of Catholicism. Yeah. The tyranny of the sultans is the tyranny of the king. And it was understood that. He got into trouble. People, yes. Even though he was in disguise, and he was able to do more in disguise than he'd been able to do before he got into disguise, into mm-hmm. his oriental disguise, he got away with more, but he still didn't quite get away mm-hmm. with it. People could see through this parodic mm-hmm. um, form. But again, the, the Saidian critique is that this shows that he had very little interest, actually, in the Middle East. I mean, he, this was a pantomime mm-hmm. Middle East of despots and swooning beauties and um, boys as beautiful as the mm-hmm. full moon. It's interesting I, as well, because I think sometimes that opposition is there. I've just been reading um, Tom Moore's Lala Rook. Mm-hmm. Um, she was published in 1817 as an oriental sequence of tales with a frame of course, Tom Moore never went to the, to the East, but he's also in a sort of race to compose alongside his friend Byron, whose Eastern tales are enormously successful. And Byron has travelled. Tom Moore is more insistent on providing very lengthy explanatory footnotes and undertakes a huge amount of research and shows off his learning in Lala Rook. At the same time as that sequence is absolutely about it's a reaction to the French Revolution of 1789 and it's also dramatising the Irish rebellions of 1798 by presenting them um, in a tale called The Fire Worshers as a conflict between Zoroastrians and Muslims in 8th century Iran. So there's a kind of play on Erin and Iran, Ireland and Iran in this sequence. The, the effect is that the person who actually knows and has travelled in 
the, the Middle East and the Near East doesn't feel the need to show off his acquaintance with it. Do you see what I mean? Whereas the writer who is who hasn't been there feels more has more of an imperative to display his learning and his understanding of those cultures. I think that the Baronic um, sort of phase actually shows something that happens to the imitation of the Arabian Nights and to the Oriental mm-hmm. Tale that is very different from his predecessors, the, the kind of satirists like Hamilton and Voltaire, or to, indeed Beckford himself. But Baron and, and Tom Moore uh, seem to me to presage what then happens, which is that the Orient becomes a place of imaginative freedom. This is where you actually show the kinds of possible emancipations of sexuality, for example. And that's how later, by the end of the century, by the end of the 19th century, it's in, entirely associated with libidinousness and, and license and, and actually decadence and effeminacy and so forth. But actually for the early part of the 19th century, these writers, it's an arena for trying out for thought experiments, but for thought experiments in personal relations so that you actually mm. get different kinds mm. of, of um, loves explored, and different kinds of politics explored. But again, it's not paying much attention to what's really going on in the Orient. No, that's true. But one of the things that, that, um, that Lala Rook sounds as if it's picked up on, which is something that interested me very much about the Arabian Nights, is that the Zoroastrians are a kind of dark shadow, um, overshadowing Islam mm. and uh, the magus, the mag- magi, the magus mm. figures, the magicians in the Arabian Nights are almost always Zoroastrians, and they're totally denounced as sort of you know appalling, vicious heretics given to you know unnatural practices, mm. alchemists mm. and and deceivers and mm. child abductors and all kinds of horrendous crimes are pinned on the Zoroastrians. And I think, I mean, I thought this was one of the sort of darker effects of the Knights. I think that gave a racist argument in the 19th century an excuse to create the dark, stranger, magician, sinister figure. Somehow, the Orientalism of the Knights itself, the other projected in the book, who is the Zoroastrian or Persian enchanter, became a convenient figure of stranger... Um, malignancy, yeah. and I think we're still in, we've still inherited that, and it's rather odd that we should have learned a kind of racist structure. Mm. Um, but the reason it was convenient is that it came in an exotic form, so it could be it could be borrowed mm. without actually looking bad ourselves. Mm. So I don't know what Lala Rook says about the Zoroastrian um, Islamic. The tale that's being told, I suppose, is about the idea of a kind of Celtic culture that's been colonised by British Protestantism. So actually, the Zoroastrian, the fire worshippers, are noble and heroic fighters. When you think about the way that writers are writing in the 18th century about India, there's a very strong sense that um, there's a native Hindu... William Jones communicates a sense that there's a native Hindu culture that's then been colonised by the Mughals, by Muslim rule, and that Christian rule in the later 18th century is somehow succeeding to that Mughal rule, but is also presenting itself as though it was going to be more sympathetic or, or more in tune with Hindu law, particularly as Jones is in terms of to somehow say that, that um, Christian rule is going to restore this original Hinduism that's been 
suppressed and you mean L O R E rather than yes L A W no I mean L A W actually a legal system that will somehow tune into a Brahminical legal system that's been suppressed at the same time as it's inheriting or following on from the Mughal attempt to stamp out what are seen as particularly forms of savagery like sati widow burning yes. I think that's possibly where Tom Moore is getting his sense of Zoroastrianism. This is like Hinduism. It's a kind of native religion that's been violently suppressed and has a kind of inherent nobility that can be refound. But of course, what doesn't that? It's not cast at all in terms of race. So I think your argument absolutely holds. It's not represented as a racial difference mm. between Islam mm. and Zoroastrianism. Mm. Mm. My feelings about the the kind of racism that unfortunately is present in some of the stories of the Arabian Nights um, is one of the very few negative feelings I have about mm. them or negative reasons I have for in my responses to the book. So I'd, I'd rather sort of like to look at some of the ways that I think it's rather emancipatory. And, mm. and for example, one of the things that I found truly um, you know, delightful and exhilarating when I started reading them as an adult is the spirit of the young women. And there's first of all the, uh, the heroines. There's first mm-hmm. of all, of course, the frame story and Shahrazad speaking up mm-hmm. for her sex against the tyranny of the Sultan and, and laying out before him a series of stories which warn him about his, his injustice and his cruelty and his mm-hmm. blindness, his psychological blindness, which I think has a relationship, for example, to the blindness that Shakespeare portrays in Othello or in Leontes in The Winter's Tale, this idea of men's instant reaction that women must be perfidious and must be murdered, uh, so yes. or silenced or shut away. So she is, of course, the main who we all know about, but these stories themselves are full of chivalrous heroines with, you know, who, were, who love desperately but loyally mm. and with great resourcefulness and undertake immense journeys and become kings in disguise. Yes. And... <laughs> and, and you know, and defend and defend their their often rather wimpy lovers. <laughs> yes, and uh, and this, I mean, obviously there are quite a number of of a number of extremely spirited enchantresses who are not well behaved, but <laughs> but they are also wonderfully entertaining to read. And this is, a and in fact, the same women can sometimes be both figures. So yes. there's not a lot lot of attention to consistency yes, sometimes. Yes, so yes. Um, the the princess who goes. She rushes to to be with her lover. They've been joined in a dream, haven't they? And then she chases him. Budura. 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 She chases him halfway across a continent to find him again and marry him. Yes. But then, I think in the next story, she's decided that she's lusting after her... Stepson. Stepson. That is a great, amazing sort of epic romance. Yes. And very complicated, interesting psychologically. But there's Mm. no lack of interest in the female characters. And that really, if you're interested in reading fairy tales, as I am, you know, that's quite a refreshing change because though we have marvellous stories about women, young women victims or young women heroines, they, they tend not to be you know, full of marvellous speeches and dra- dramatic adventures. I so, agree. I mean, I think it's that verbal mm-hmm. dexterity yes. or, or that, that verbal sort of performance mm-hmm. that's so fascinating mm-hmm. yes. about the women. It's not just that they are agents in their stories mm. but it's that they use language and they use language sort of attentively and curiously to change 
there are transformations that happen physically in the stories, but there are transformations that story brings about in Absolutely. itself. Yes. And it's very often women yes. who well, are the vehicles for that. Yes, it's a very metafictional text, of course, because it's mm. always commenting on the power of narrative itself mm. to institute wisdom, in fact, uh, to, to, to turn the tide of events, but also to clarify an individual's mind. There are many embedded mm. stories. Shahrazad is talking to the Sultan, and inside her story... Fisherman is talking to the genie who wants to kill him. The merchant is talking also to a genie who wants to kill him, and so forth. And within those stories, there are other stories in which people are pleading for their lives. But there's not quite the same kind of thing as the um, the early modern pardon tale, whereby you plead for your life by giving a kind of um, self-justification. This is much more about the power of the word, the actual power of the written story, to extend the horizons of us readers, the characters inside the book, but us readers outside the book. So I think you've written about this. I think that the Arabian Nights is, in one sense, has taken the conventional trope of the wiles of women, that women are not to be trusted, that women are treacherous, deceitful, and just, you know, lift lift their dress and you will see their cloven hoof underneath. Mm. That trope, which is very, very strong, it's taken that misogynist, famous misogynist trope, and turned it into the mirror of princes trope, which mm. is the, the form in which the book is an instruction to the characters in the book, but also to us receiving the book, about a better way to behave, a better way to be a ruler, a better way to be mm. a lover, a better way to be a parent, and so forth. It also, interestingly, counters that tendency. If you read a lot of 17th century travel accounts of... Um, um, travelling in eastern courts, the co- there's a tendency to represent them as spaces that close off women from from power. That the harem is a is a is, and obviously, proto-feminist writers in the 18th century pick up on this and sort of say, you know, men are treating us like eastern sensualists and despots and keeping us away from political power and um, requiring us to serve their, you know, making our highest achievement being able to entertain them in luxury. Um, and yet the Arabian Nights is actually saying that this this chamber in which story happens is the place where power actually is located. Leslie Pierce has a wonderful book called The Imperial Harem, mm. which says actually you know, this is a Western misapprehension of what the Eastern, what the Ottoman mm. court was like, because the harem is placed right in the centre of a of a of a court and a political culture in which there is no differentiation made between domestic and political power in the way that there is in the West. Yes. Um, but one of the things that happens is the women are not enclosed. They are usually, uh, uh, in the stories, they tend to have to disguise themselves to travel great distances mm. or to undertake mm. adventures. They, they don't often travel in female dress, I think. But, yeah. they, but they, what I like about it is they, they're, they're always writing. And that's another rather different reflection get on the lives of the past. Because actually, it's not... I try to think of English or European fairy tale in which the heroine is always writing. You know, they write love letters, they write poems, they write letters to their parents when they've travelled. The tendency to think about wonder as something that's being written out of Western culture through the course of the 18th century, I think. I I mean, literary historians and critics very often the sort of rise of empiricism, the kind of notion of experiential knowledge as being something that's repressing or 
suppressing wonder. And I wonder what I wonder whether that's partly a, a willful lack of attention to the Arabian Nights and its and its influence, which I think you often find actually in, in literary accounts of literary history that, that rather yes, the yes. people that it's not a very attractive text to incorporate. That yes, well, I mean, and I, I was very struck that when you look at sort of encyclopedias that tell you about the history of flight mm-hmm. and the, the, the imaginings of flight before flight, they will always include Leonardo, but they never include the Arabian Nights. Right. It's considered, so they don't think of the, the I mean, they think of Daedalus, who is after all a mythical figure, mm-hmm. as part of the prehistory. He always mm-hmm. figures. But they don't, or Icarus, but they don't think of the many, many flying vehicles and the ingenuity with which they are imagined. You know, the, the horse, the, automat- the horse automaton mm. in the magic horse, which has to have a peg on its forelock and a peg on its tail. You know, it's well imagined as to how it would go up and down. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I tried to formulate the argument that the reason that the book was so well received in the 18th century was not because it was the pleasure of the repressed, Turn of the repressed, or the um, you know the the kind of safety valve escapism, but actually that it was in itself a continuity of Enlightenment inquiry along lines that had ceased to be permitted because of the need for verifiable evidence. Yeah. Here was a book, and it's not the only one, of course. There are other there's other fantastic fiction in the period mm. which is sort of doing the same thing, mm. uh, where thought experiments could take place about natural phenomena. So the story of Abdullah of the land and the sea, that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's wonder, that's inquiry, that's yes. curiosity. Mm-hmm. And similarly, the, there are many aspects of, of the sort of incidents in the book that take, take possibility into another place, and certainly the flying is one of them. But the imagination of other lands, um, the, the kind of travel elements mm-hmm. of the story... Mm-hmm. The imagination of other beings, yeah. and of talk things like talking animals. Yes. I mean, the, you make a lovely connection. I think in your in your book between the, the talking animals and then the immense popularity of the it narrative, sort of talking shillings. And there's a there's a history of a rupee, isn't there? And there's mm-hmm. a history of an atom in the 18th century. So this and they speak in the first person. Yes, mm-hmm. and That's tell it. their story of being passed hand to hand, which again yes. has this sense of sense of. Of travel, yes, and of course, it, a lot of it comes from Cravillon. Oddly, from Cravillon Fils's La Sofa, it's a sort of stationary object, but lots of things come to it. It's marvelous. <laughs> well, people mar- come to it. Marvelous story. Yes. In which the young man is punished and turned into a sofa for yeah. his for his indiscretion. He's not allowed to be. He won't be metamorphosed back into a human being until two pure lovers have declared their love while sitting on him. <laughs> But, it's, but you're right, and of course it goes with the bijou indiscret, mm. the indiscreet jewels of Diderot, which also the jewels there are speaking jewels, there, but, um, but the jewels are also the metonym for the, uh, the vulva of the women who yeah. speak, the sultan's wives. And when they speak, they speak of how dissatisfied they are. And yes. So there is now, it used to be considered a salacious book that was of no value but accepted entertainment, that is now thought of as rather a proto-feminist book because Diderot makes the women speak how bored they are, how, how they suffer, how their interest is not um, you know, catered to at all by the Sartre, and he's very shocked to hear mm. that his wives are so dissatisfied with him. So there's an element of emancipatory mm. experiment there as well. The, I think the intuition in the speaking objects 
the reason that these writers, these, after all, philosophes, picked up the story, picked up the device, is that the rise in the importance of manufactured, mass-produced goods, um, as we're becoming, coming into, into, the modern, into modernity, had given inert objects a different kind of life. And this was strongly intuited in the, in the stories. Mm-hmm. The, the stories are just full of precious objects, but they're differentiated one from another through these imaginary projections of, of the exchange mm-hmm. value, which we, we could call the exchange value. I was wondering as well about whether they also stand in for something about the magic of the book itself. When oh. Coleridge talks about the Arabian Nights volumes that seem to be illuminated on the shelf of his house and are calling to him, mm-hmm. I mean, there is this idea that the book itself has a kind of magic. Mm-hmm. And I love the title of your book, Stranger Magic, because it is also that sense of the lore of the book mm-hmm. um, and that it's somehow calling to its readers to engage with it. Well, one of the things that happens in the book is that Shahrazad tells her stories... And then every now and then, someone in a story says, this story is so remarkable, we must write it down and put it in the library. Yes. So there is a recognition in the stories themselves of the preciousness and the power Mm. of the memorialization of the story. Mm. It's passing from the fluidity of of the word, of the tongue and speech, to the permanent enshrinement in the book. Mm. And... There are other stories in the, in the stories about power of books themselves. I mean, there are a number of books of spells um, that are important. But there's also the famous story of the Greek king and the Doctor Duban, yeah. where the book acts as the murder weapon. But it's because it becomes a murder weapon because its wisdom has not been listened to, because the blind, the, the, the mentally blind um, Greek king has refused to honour the wisdom of the doctor who saved his life. And his knowledge in the book, therefore, becomes the retribution for his... And, of course, it's a warning from Shahrazad and the outside mm-hmm. frame um, against the continuing myopia of the Sultan Shahriyan. It is, isn't it? But it's also a paradoxical warning because there was a way in which you could read the stories as Shahriyan knowing full well what they're telling him and choosing not to hear that because otherwise the sequence stops. You see what I mean? At the moment that you learn what the truth is, you see what I mean? yes. the moment that you've learned from a story is the moment that you perhaps don't need it any longer, but you leave it behind. So there's a need to generate. I'm thinking about, again, commodification. The, the point about a commodity culture is you need to build some disposability mm. <laughs> and the need for more. Mm. Um, and the story is also about how do you continue the sequence. I'm afraid um, I think that that's something that has actually sort of happened in, in in contemporary popular culture, you know, there's been such a rise in the popularity of fairy tale yeah. um, that we now have many blockbuster films, and somehow they really do evacuate the story of its core power. I mean, something like I'm afraid Snow White and the Huntsman yeah. seemed to me to miss Snow White just went sailing straight past the power of that story. And that's to do with it being told to a point when people feel they have to add to it to make it work again, and that kind of diminishes it by excess. By, yes. By, by, by it might be because it is also that same story. I mean, actually, it's a very small core mm. of stories that get repeated. One of the great things about the Arabian Nights, I think, is its, is its inventiveness. I mean, Scheherazade, she's a teller of tales. She doesn't make the stories up. No, that's right. It's, she has a remarkable memory, we're yes, told yes, at the start. Yes, and she has but, a library. She's, yes. read, she's read them in the library. You might sort of wish that Hollywood directors did have that 
capacity yes. to know more yes. stories. <laughs> well, one, of the, I mean, one of the sad things of the history of the reception of the Knights has certainly been the thinning out of our yes. knowledge of them. I thought I knew the book when I began writing mine or researching mine, and I found very quickly that I didn't know the book at all. I knew Sinbad, I knew Alibaba, I knew one or two of the less so well-known ones, but I certainly didn't know. There are over 200, and they're hard to remember. They're complicated. They, there are conventional tropes, and there are some repetitions. There's some stories that return with different characters' names, but the plot is the same. They are remarkably inventive. It's a resource that has been extremely underused. And it's interesting to me that both of us, in writing our books, chose to combine books about the Arabian Nights, wanted to combine the stories with, uh, with a commentary. Does not mean that we couldn't... There was a kind of compulsion... I mean, it's partly to get to get your readers' attention and to make them engaged. I think there is also a sense of wanting to communicate some of that richness and diversity within the Arabian Nights. Yes, I mean, I began or across the Oriental yes. tale in general. I mean, I began summarising the plots, and then I thought it was just deadening them. Yes, absolutely. and that I really should allow try and allow the stories to speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. So I I did epitomies, but they're more lively. Oh, I was trying to be a little mm-hmm. more lively, um, but they also such... enable the following reading. I think both of us said. They're another way of getting at what you're trying to argue for a reader. They give a reader access to a kind of understanding that you can't always get through critical... Well, that you can't get through critical discourse. Mm. It can't deliver. But the other point that I think made these stories and their like from fantasy literature is that it become customary to reject the idea that human imagination was irreducibly irrational. Was we were trying, we were aiming at rationality, and there would be a point when rationality would be achieved. I think that's got it slightly the wrong way around. I think we have to see the rationality of our irrationality rather than rather than try and suppress it. And I think the stories actually reveal that. For example, what we were talking about, the power of books, the power of the word, the power of the story, even though it may be limited in the way that you describe, that once you've heard the story, you have no further need of it. This does admit and presume the power of words to institute some kind of change without actually doing anything but being spoken. That has very strong relationships to magic. Once you've read The Arabian Nights, you see it everywhere and you hear it echoed everywhere. (laughs) It sort of seems to permeate every cultural artefact that you encounter. So it becomes a kind of recognition effect. Yes. I want to do something on how, after this sort of acclamation and enthusiasm in, um, in Europe, then writers in Arabic yeah. and writers of the Arabic world, sometimes in French, sometimes in Italian, sometimes in, in, in other languages, um, return to the nested tale, the idea of the storyteller's voice, the idea that you can push the novel to create these thought experiments mm-hmm. about possible worlds. So it's sort of the way that it's travelled back from its... Yes, because yes. it got embraced yes, in the West and, yes, and now it's yes. taken back. Because it was considered to be low sort of pop fiction mm. in its original... Um, by its original audiences, uh, partly because the Arabic is colloquial. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, we'll look forward to that. Oh, well.